Christ commanded us to preach the gospel and disciple the nations. All we do is in support of that mission statement. Join us as we strive to fight the good fight of faith together. Welcome to the Warriors Rising. Hey, this is Paul with Warriors Rising. Glad to have you on the team. Glad to have you in the fight. We are here today on our actual official one-year anniversary with Tiana Showy. How are you doing, Tiana? Good morning, Paul. Can you believe the Warriors Rising turns one today on this 10th of November? I I was I was kind of ecstatic about it a couple weeks ago and then <laughs> realized I was totally off because as you pointed out, we did a couple extra episodes. So no, it, it's kind of nuts, but I think we talked about it last week that it's this year is just flown by the second half felt like the first half was just, I was really enjoying it. It was just kind of drawn out. Just felt like it was kind of sauntering along and I was happy with it. And it's just like, boom, now we're in November and rolling into the next election cycle and a whole bunch of other shenanigans on, on, on that front that goes along with that. Shenanigans is a good word, Paul. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of shenanigans, uh, the Babylon Bee did a great job summarizing for us the Republican debate and Nikki Haley's. (laughs) Did you see Nikki Haley's like bizarre tweet about her high heels? I I didn't. Oh, that was where they were talking about her foot fetish. Yeah, she, <laughs> she, she got totally mocked because she said something on Twitter. I forget what it was or X, sorry. And it was like, my high heels aren't just for show. They're a weapon or something like that. And so like she got roasted by the, like all like the X community because like, what in the world are you even talking about? Nikki? <laughs> Well, and she's she just wants to be president. That's she does, and she's she's a rhino. She's she's you know she wasn't strong against abortion. She was she's that died in the wool part of the system type of you know. And that's and I think it's Dan Bongino who says it very well. He talks about you know when it comes to uh, when it comes to running a campaign. I mean, people don't care about your deep in depth white paper on China and what's going on when you're campaigning. It is sound bites and snapshots. Yeah. sound bites and snapshots that's everything and that's that's the world we live in and people's lives are just so one it's due to the way we consume media so it's you get those sound bites in if they sound good people don't really care too much about the in-depth stuff because it's like hey i don't have time to really go into what your views on western in the western congo and how that's going to affect the trade and nigeria and all the stuff with the electric battery like what are you going to do for me what's the initial what's give me the wave tops so i mean if, if you can and i think that's where uh rom uh i always screw up his name Vegwa ramshwami really hit it out of the <laughs> park he vivek ramshwami yeah he uh he knocked it out of the park by saying you know like it or not about how why are we on a news network. Why are we running this debate on a news network that is was part of the collusion hoax with Trump and part of the PP tape hoax? And then they, it's it's being who it's being ran by. It's like we should have Tucker Carlson, Joe Rogan, and somebody else up there. And I was like, Elon, he's not wrong. Elon, he said. Elon, he yeah, said Elon Musk, Tucker and Elon, yeah, Joe Tucker and Elon, yeah. I mean, it, and that dad gum. I'd say just that on that. If you go based on what people are going to be exposed to and how many people are actually going to watch the debate. 
I would say that was the winning one because that soundbite right there. And I know that soundbite blew up on X and on, on social media, but I mean, he's not wrong. And it just shows again, the disconnect of our, our government uh, to the American people. And it is, a, it is, they, they don't like the American people. They really don't. Politicians do not like the Amer- average American people. They're there to enrich themselves. That's about it at this point. Yeah. And there's just, it's the sad truth of it. Yeah, it is. And I don't really care to watch any of the debates because it's just circus. It's like, I don't know about you, Paul, I probably wouldn't have gone to the Roman Coliseum because the idea of watching people just wail on each other, not necessarily my thing. I don't know. How about you? Would you have been a gladiator? I I probably would have gone and watched. (laughs) Who knows? You know, it's, but, but it's, it's theater. It's all theater. It's all distraction. And you know, unfortunately with the way our government is going and the way our country is going, barring some insane miracle, I don't see it getting any better. Right. I mean, when you look at the debt, they don't, cause if they actually cared, they'd actually work to deal with the financial situation we're in because they're driving us towards a Weimar situation. And what most people don't realize when it comes to Weimar is we tend to just naturally think, oh, inflation over time, it gets, you know, progressively got there. It's like, and really what it, it doesn't work like that. It hits this tipping point And then just in a second, everything shoots through the roof and you lose all value. And then you're walking down the street with a wheelbarrow full of cash, trying to buy a loaf of bread and it's instantaneous. It's overnight, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, that's why it's so dangerous. And then, you know, people do talk about, I've heard some people talk about uh, the, you know, that's why you got to buy gold. That's why you got to buy stuff like that. Precious metals in, in the history of the world at the fall of an empire or the fall of a, of a, an economy, they never went to a precious metal system. They went to a bartering system and a black market system. That's why uh, I can't remember who it was, but he said the, the only thing that you need is, is the precious metal is lead. <laughs> that, that's, that's the precious metal you need when it comes yeah. to the fall of an economy and, and a nation. Um, but you know, I, I was on a, I was having a conversation with a few people and even back years ago, we were discussing back in 2012, when the Arab spring, I think it was 2012 when the Arab spring was kicking off that it, you would be amazed how many training camps, even back then for these Muslim military age males around the country, there were that they weren't doing a darn thing about, and they're basically small militias and it's just camps and living areas with military age males. And now with the border, the way it is, you know, when you look at the idea, the, the, the globalist agenda, mm-hmm. America has always been a major part of why that would, they were not able to move forward to that extent. Mm-hmm. And then Trump getting in, obviously now Bush, Clinton, Obama party doesn't really matter. Uh, the Bushes, the, the dad was, I think, wasn't he the head of the CIA? I can't remember. Um, but basically when you actually go down there, the, they were all the same. They were all mm-hmm. yeah. cut from the same cloth. The The goals were the same for our nation. They just ran under a different political banner. And that's why Trump was such a, a wrench in the system because he completely stopped what they were trying to accomplish. And so then once Biden got in, you got Obama on steroids because mm-hmm. again, it, they like to play the long game. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's why it works because they are willing to play the long game. Because if you would have done today what they're doing and what our president is doing, what our Congress is doing, what our government as a whole is doing and allowing, and our federal 
law enforcement agencies allowing and then doing to the American population uh, for anybody that speaks against this, the narrative, you'd have never gotten away with it. Not mm-hmm. to, not to this extent. Right. So mm-hmm. there, that, and that's where we go to ideological subversion and you go to um, just that little drip at a time, right? We don't care about the water coming in. If it's just a little drip, you know, it's the, it's the frog in the frog in the uh, how you boil a frog, right? You yeah, don't just throw it hot. Water, you yeah. put it in the cold water, then you slowly heat it up until it boils to death. And so it, it's been, it's been interesting uh, from that standpoint. I, I don't think America is most Americans. I feel like they understand something is coming, but they don't understand fully what, and that's just a matter of time before something really does pop off. And, and that's just the fact of the matter. That's why you have a bunch of Chinese military age males now coming into the country. You have a bunch of Syrian, Middle Eastern, uh, Palestinian, just from all the different Middle Eastern countries. They're not coming with their families. They're coming just, just them, right? Um, it, it's only a matter of time before something occurs. Mm-hmm. And with just the tensions rising in the Middle East with China, all that, it something's going to pop off. I find it interesting. Um, Albert Pike, he was a high-level Freemason. The guy was a straight Satanist back in the 1800s. You know, he was writing about this stuff and writing about the three world wars that were going to come. And I, I would recommend people go and just research what he wrote about it. It was very interesting um, regarding that, and and it's played out pretty much exactly so far in the last two. And it's looking like we're going the direction that he said on the third one. But again, you know, all of these things have to occur in order for what the Bible states is going to occur to take place. Now, with that, right, does God cause or does God know because he's God? You know, and and right. again, it's one of those things that, and we talked about this with higher criticism and biblical scholarship. They they reject uh, prophecy as a means to demonstrate the validity of the text being divine. Mm-hmm. And so they'll put a later dating on it. And it works, it works up until the the second century BC. Mm-hmm. But then once you get past that, okay, well, what do you do about the rest of it and all the things that are starting to come to pass or have come to pass over the last 2000 years that, okay, well, now you're still hundreds and thousands of years in advance writing in detail. So, I mean, it, it's right up so far. Um, but it, it, the way that our country is going, the way that the nation is going, the things that are coming about and the world, you know, I, I think it's an exciting time to be a Christian. Because even if this stuff takes about 10, 15, 20 years to boil over and really hit to where it's going, you know, either way, it's exciting because we get to be a part of it in the sense of being Christians and being light and salt. Yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, we it's a very unique course. time. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and that's that's partly why I'm building the 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 Through the Bible program that I'm building, because... And I'm going to start putting my outlines on warriorsrising.com as I complete them. I've got the intro done, so I'm going to throw that up today. Um, but because if if you don't have a good understanding of the text, you're not going to understand what's happening, why it's happening, and you're not going to understand your role within it, right? right? Paul Paul in 2 Timothy 3 talking about scripture and its inspiration and how it's good for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. You know, I mean... So if, if you want to be able to complete and carry out what we are supposed to as Christians in our lives, not just evangelistically, but just throughout our lives every day in discipleship, in, in carrying your cross, all that, it's it requires and, it, and you should have a good knowledge of the Bible. It, it 
Mm-hmm. It's it's a necessity. It's not a suggestion. Yeah. Well, you know, a couple of things you said there that I just want to touch on. I thought Frank Turk gave the best analogy I've heard of God's ability to see outside of time. And he said, if you're watching a parade, you're sitting and you're just watching the events that are occurring before you. But if you were to get in a helicopter and you were to go way above the parade, you could see the beginning from the end of the parade. And so you could see the entirety of the parade Yes, you know, and, and and get that perspective. And that's how God looks at time. He can see the beginning from the end. And we're sitting here on the street corner, just watching the events as they go by, but God's sitting above all of them and watching the beginning from the end. And I think that oftentimes, and you and I were talking about this earlier about higher scholarship, you know, the reality is, is that people are going to put their trust in one of two things, right? They're going to put it in man or God. And, you know, and, and it's that simple. And so these, these people who are married to listening to what scholars say, it's because they don't want to trust in a supernatural, all-powerful God. They want to trust in man. They would rather yeah. have something more to, that they perceive to be more tangible. I mean, I don't know how you get more tangible than the sun rising every day, <laughs> but, you know, but they want something perceived as more tangible than God himself. And I find it ironic how quickly they are to, to dismiss the evidence for God. But, you know, the, the other thing that was fascinating that you just said is, you know, our ability to earn rewards and, and knowing God's word. I've been listening to Chuck Missler's teaching on the book of Ezekiel, as I told you, and as he went through Ezekiel 33, which is the watchman, he, you know, what is it that, that, and the, excuse me, the shepherds, you know, that neglected the flock, what is it that he rebukes him for not feeding the sheep? And what is the primary means of food? And that Chuck Missler points out in that teaching, which is, the word of God. And yeah. he says, anytime you go to a church and they're not feeding people the word of God, then they're starving the sheep. And it was fascinating because I was having a conversation with somebody the other day that had gone to church for years. And I asked him, oh, well, you know, Abraham. No, didn't know who Abraham was. Yeah. And, and I was just sitting here thinking to myself, wow, I, I, you know, this is this is the this is this is hugely problematic that you can go to church for any period of time and not even know who Abraham is. Well, I've got the study. I'll have to look it up. I might have it. Let me let me see if I can find this thing. Um, grab some. Of course, I can't find it. Um, but basically, oh man, where is this? If I'd have known you're going to pop that. Sorry. What did I pop? (laughs) (laughs) No, if I I knew you were going to, no, I've got to, I've got to find this study. Where is this darn thing? Well, you're finding that. I'm going to, okay. Yep. So right here. Uh, so as of 2022, 37, only 37% of pastors hold a biblical worldview, Mm -hmm. 41% of head pastors, 28% of associate pastors, 12% of children, youth, 13% of teaching pastors. And that was, um, on the Arizona Christian.edu. It was done by Dr. Tracy Munsell. Um, mm-hmm. and Barna also is doing some studies that is the stuff coming out of there is just insane when you actually look at the church and pastors don't know the scriptures, right? And we talked about, you know, higher critical scholarship. Uh, I did a TikTok on it and with this the Mormon Dan McClellan, right? And the the Mormon apostate crazy wackadoodle like yeah make sure you give some context we're giving you credibility <laughs> yeah. to this yeah man. yeah he's gonna have so much blood on his hands if he does not repent it's ridiculous he yeah so so and we talked about higher critical scholarship before and basically it is they so it they they reject not all but a lot of the biblical authorship right mm-hmm. they just say that's not it wasn't written that by that moses didn't write the first five books 
Um, you know, Paul did not write the pastoral epistles. Um, and, and it's interesting because I basically went into it explaining what higher critical scholarship is in the most basic way possible, right? Because yes, I could use the scholarly language, but it's like, why, right? If you can explain it with brevity and clarity, why do I need to give you all the scholarly language? But basically, um, it was interesting because I, I just gave examples. I stated what it was. I gave examples of its ridiculousness. And an example, when they say that the pastoral epistles uh, weren't written by Paul, they'll say, well, it doesn't use the same language. It doesn't approach theology the same as in the other epistles. Uh, it, it references in Christ in a different way. Um, it uses language not found within the other Pauline epistles. Um, and uh, they didn't, and it uh, also, it discusses how uh, they didn't, they'll try to say that the church leadership wasn't structured in that way uh, by at the middle of the first century, which all of those are easily dismissed. One, it ignores purpose. You know, mm -hmm. if I'm writing to you, Tiana, uh, a letter, and I'm writing to you about um, structuring structuring of leadership within the church and requirements for elders and all those things, and then I'm writing to, uh, you know, your sister on worship and the, the theological concepts within worship, those letters are going to have very different language and be very different. Why? Because their purpose is incredibly different. It's to two different people. The relationship is different. You know, it, it's it, it ignores all that. Right. Um, also, it ignores things like in Acts, um, we see elders, we see overseers. All, the, the structure is there clearly within the Book of Acts. Um, it's it just it's it just it's such a frustrating thing. And um, but of course, you know, then it, people were. It was funny because people were in my comments like. Oh, this, you know, whatever is, I can't wait for Dan to slam you, blah, blah, blah. And so I, I, I watched Dan's reply and I'm like, that was the biggest scholarly, uh-uh, I've ever heard in my life. Cause he, scholarly. but, but, but <laughs> yeah. the thing was, I was mean, and if you're not knowing, if you're not careful and not really listening, he confirms what I say. Mm-hmm while trying to deny what I say at the same time. Like, he's like, we don't deny authorship. There was a real John that wrote Revelation. Paul wrote the Pauline epistles. It's like, right. But what about all, you know, we believe Isaiah one wrote part of Isaiah. It was like, well, that's just right there. You know? So, so it's like this word game, like, oh yeah, you'll, you'll say yes, a couple authors wrote these things, but then these other ones no. And like, so, you know, it's just, and of course everybody's like, oh, he burned you. It's like, that just demonstrates that you don't really, you didn't listen to what I said. You didn't listen. And he didn't deal with like, so an example. Um, and I think this is important because, mm -hmm. you know, it, it, the validity of the text is, is, is massive. Um, and understanding what they really do. And if, and you can break it down to simplicity, it's not a straw man. It, I mean, I think it's kind of ridiculous to think that you can't, you, you know, you paint it into caricature. It's like, you know, you give examples, Right. The, the example would be Stephen Pressfield. They would you would you if you apply higher critical scholarship the way that they do to Stephen Pressfield, you would have to say that he did not write the Legend of Bagger Vance. Why? Because right. he doesn't write sports fiction. Stephen Pressfield writes historical uh, war fiction. That's what he writes. You know, and, and so it's 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 pretty insane. Um, but what you see is a lack of critical thinking. And you see confirmation bias, mm -hmm. right? Um, the book of Daniel is an example. They 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 love to dump all over Daniel um, continuously. Mm -hmm. They they put it at the, uh, they say they get the line of succession wrong uh, when it comes to the kings. Well, the problem with that is Daniel's not 
meant to be a narr- a narrative chronological order. It's right. it's actually broken up thematically. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the chapters are out of order from in which they took place. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll have to pull up. I've got it written down what order they're in, but it's based on based on themes, not on the chronology. If that makes sense. Yeah. And that's just how it was written. That's how Daniel wrote it. But and that's how um, the Bible's laid out too. Also, in, in many, yeah, way, exactly. You know, exactly. out of order from the yeah. If if we were putting it in chrono- chronological order, Ezra and Nehemiah would be at the very end of the right. Old Testament. Well, and and yeah, uh, Matthew. Matthew is based around thematics and and yeah. discourses. It's not meant to be a chronological thing. Luke is chronological, but like Daniel, for example, uh, they mocked Daniel for centuries, uh, be saying that there was nobody named Belshazzar reigning in Babylon. Right. And then in the 19th century, I believe it was or the 1800s, I can't remember, with the Nabonidus Chronicles and the Neo Babylonian archives, they found out, oh, Nabonidus, he he hung out in Arabia and he basically had uh, Belshazzar be the guy in his place. Yeah. So, I mean, even the greatest archaeologists and, archaeologists and historians did not know this, but the Bible knew this. Mm-hmm. And so, but, but of course, then they say, well, he, they, I've, I've actually heard one scholar say, but he wouldn't have called called, they wouldn't have called him King because Nabonidus was King. It's like, um, I, 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 I kind of think that he would probably call him King. If that dude's the acting King in Nabonidus and is in Arabia, he's probably having people call him King. I, I don't yeah. think he's like, oh no, I'm the, I'm the co-regent. No. Yeah. Um, but, but the fact of the matter is, like, and so they'll kick the count down the road and other things they'll ignore um, the purpose they'll ignore the way it's actually thematically structured anyways. Um, but what that demonstrates is that the writer of Daniel had to be an eyewitness mm-hmm. to that, mm-hmm. to that fact that Belshazzar was ruling in Babylon. So it wasn't written in 165 uh, BC. It was in the sixth century BC that that was mm-hmm. most likely written. And there's a lot more evidences. Um, and, and when we look at the Bible, you know, uh, when you study archaeology, it's interesting looking at biblical archaeology. The reason that we have the archaeology that that they have found all the cities and all the archaeological sites that they did within the Middle East, within Israel, is because of the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Had they not had that, they would not have gone and looked at those pl- looked for them in those places. And what do you know? It always proves the Bible. So, for example, when we look and this, but this is again the the shenanigans that they pull. Yeah. Right. They ignore clear evidence and because it, it demonstrates validity to the text, like when it comes to uh, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, right? When it, uh, they, with the blessings and the cursings, when they go into the land and they're told, hey, when you get there on Mount Ebal, you're going to, they're going to enunciate the curses, build an altar, no cut stones, no steps on it. Well, they, when they found that curse stone, right, where it's got like the words curse, 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 Yahweh, curse, or whatever in um, on a ball, one that demonstrates, okay, Mount of Curse, that's okay, that's that's back from Torah and Joshua, it matches. And then they also found an altar. They found an altar with no steps, with a ramp, uncut stones, and the, the bones that they found were of clean animals that were meant for sacrifice. And I was watching this one archaeologist on this dig, and he was talking about how he had his other secular buddies with him. And he was like, this is amazing. See this? This this demonstrates and proves what was written in Joshua and within the Torah. And the, he said, the guy said, possibly. 
<laughs> you know, you know, you know, it, it, the, it, it comes to a point it gets Frank Turk is the one Frank Turk said it best. It, it is, it is not a head issue. It's a heart issue, mm-hmm. yeah. you know? And so that that's where, you know, with a lot of these people, you've got Dan and Dan is a Mormon, even though, and I will give the guy credit and say, he, he even says the evidence shows that the book of Mormon is not true. The evidence shows that the book of Mormon is, is, is not valid, but he, but he also attacks the Bible, but again, he's not saved. So he can be influenced by the enemy and he doesn't care that atheists and deconstructionists love him. He doesn't care what it does to their faith. Why? Because it really doesn't matter because it's not a salvific thing for him, you know? And, you know, it, it's just as Satan always uses different strategies, we know this. And so when it comes to the scholarly world and he uh, back in the, you know, with the rise of higher critical scholarship and liberal theology coming into America in the 1900s, you know, that was a definite in majorly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can't, you can't question the scholars. And as long as scholars state it, you know, you have that authority that goes behind it and what's. And it doesn't really matter, right? Because people don't, this is what's interesting is people don't care. They don't care what evidence you put forth. They don't care what the person says. They just want that, that tell me I'm right. Yeah. Tell me I'm right. Affirm their cognitive biases or their biases. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And yet we're the dogmatic ones. You know what I mean? That's what's so funny. But you know, the, the beauty of scripture is that when you actually dive down deep and you really do start to push hard, it. It, it, you can demonstrate its validity. There's so much Absolutely. evidence for its truth. Yeah. And yet the, the fact of the matter is they're, they're going to deny that or they're going to ignore it. Why? Because then they can't do what they want to do to the text. Then they're accountable. Right. Well, it's the accountability thing. You know, Chuck Mister says something that's wise and I'm going to butcher the way he says it, but he says the biggest obstacle to obtaining truth is thinking you already have it. Yeah. And it's like, yep. yeah, yeah. If you can't, if you can't accept the fact that maybe there's misinformation that, that you, you hold something to be true, that is not true, then you're not possibly going to be able to obtain the truth. And yep. that's exactly what, you know, that's exactly, but, but it, at the end of the day, you know, these people, like, like you said, from Frank Turk, they don't want there to be a God. They, and, and this is, this was Richard Dawkins biggest issue and why he wrote the God delusion is yeah not that there isn't evidence for a God, but he doesn't want there to be a God because then all of a sudden you can't be the God of your life. You can't sin without consequences. You know, you can't live your life the way you want to live. And I saw just a short video on, on Twitter of this like unhinged leftist losing his mind on this Republican. He's like, you want to get in people's bedrooms. And it's like, that's the heart of the issue right there. You want to be able to, to do whatever you want to do to gratify your flesh and have no consequences. And that's, that's what it boils down to. And this is why when you read the book of revelation and God pours out judgment after judgment, you see, but they did not repent, but they did not repent, but they did not repent because our hearts are hard. And that, you know, it's like, okay, it, it, you know, praise God. And this is something we touched on last week. Praise God for the, for the redeeming work of Jesus and the power of the Holy spirit in our lives that begins to make that transformation because you and I, we share, we share a common characteristic in that we're hard headed idiots. <laughs> That's very true. <laughs> and, and the only reason you know, that, that our, our eyes have been open and our hearts have been softened is because of the work of the Holy spirit in our lives, uh, because you and I would be you know, bulldog pig headed morons out there promoting the same stuff were it not for the redeeming work of the Holy spirit, Yeah, uh, because it's just our, te- it's, it's that tendency in the sin nature uh, within mankind to just say, you know what, 
uh, I don't care what the facts say. I don't care what the truth says. I'm going to do what I'm going to do and to hell with the consequences. Yeah. You know, it's that the beauty of, of it all is that when put to the test, we can demonstrate that God is true. Yeah. You know, yeah. his word is true and we can trust it and we can trust him. And over and over and over every day, he says, do you, he, yes, every, every day, day you're going to get asked, God's going to ask you, do you trust me? Mm -hmm. Do you mm -hmm. trust me? And, you know, we don't blind faith as can be, can be dangerous, right? It can be, let's be honest. I, I do think sometimes that there, you're going to have a semi-blind faith in some things from the standpoint of like, you don't know, but you know what you trust mm -hmm. and and you just trust, Hey God, I, I don't understand this necessarily. I don't get it, but I have faith that, that whatever's going on or whatever you're saying here, you got it. Yeah. And, but there's just the Christian life is, is, is wonderful. And the fact that it is a growing relationship with the Lord, if you pursue mm -hmm. and he demonstrates his truth, mm -hmm. he demonstrates the truth of his word. He demonstrates his, his reality in your life. And I mean, I know I see it I see it so I've seen it so much in my own life, whether it be pre being protected overseas, whether it be uh, with my wife's cancer, the way he's answered prayers with with me getting out of the military and my epilepsy, you know, it's, you know, how, how do you how do you argue, you know, that's and people say, well, you can't, you can't go by your, your personal experiences don't matter. It's like, yet, yet they do. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Now, I will say that one of the things right, the saints, exactly when I want, I will say this. And because this is something people can get hung up on and stuck on when it comes to scripture and prophecy and experience, then the argument will be, well, what about prophecy in other texts? What about those people's experiences? Right. And the truth of the matter is they're very real. Mm -hmm. Some of these prophecies that they are given are true prophecy. But who are they getting it from? It's the source, exactly. It's the source, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like there's a reason that the Barak that Muhammad was meeting to get the message for Islam matches the exact description of the slanderer and 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 Satan in yeah. is it Isaiah? Right. When he talks yeah. about him, like all the, you had the most precious stones. It was Isaiah. Yeah, that was Ezekiel. It's Ezekiel, Ezekiel 28. Yeah. yeah. yeah Ezekiel, Ezekiel 28. 28. The description of Ezekiel 28. Well, the angel, the way that the angel is described in Ezekiel 28, Satan is, is the same description that Muhammad gives for the angel that was giving him the revelation, you know? So, <laughs> you know, and, and people like in the Kundalini awakening, you know, these people, they feel good. They feel elation. They feel love. Like, Yeah you're going to <laughs> like, right. you know, people have this idea that Satan is going to come along and terrify you. That is not always the case. And many times it is not right. We see this with uh pursuit of uh DMT, right? They, mm -hmm. the people that go on these crazy DMT trips, they, they meet these entities and they get these messages and they feel this love and they feel connection. It's like, yeah, man, like that's part of the deception. Like you're meeting real entities. They're really speaking to you. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. these prophecies and things that these people got, like, it doesn't mean it's not true. But again, like you said, what's the source of it? Because yeah. Satan does speak and Satan does, There, there's a lot of things Satan knows. You know, when, when they, when they went to Legion, uh, I think, I think it was Legion. Uh, and he says, have you come, they say, have you come to torment us before the time? Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, 
that means they have a general understanding of what occurs or when that time is mm -hmm. for them to understand and recognize it is before that time. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So, so not completely ignorant to no. what's going on. Yeah. Well, then that's, so, the other thing you've got to remember is that Satan has a whole lot of practice baiting humans. Yes. So he knows how to, he knows, he knows for each individual person exactly what to put on the hook. And I think that's why C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters is such a profound mm -hmm. insight into the human psychology, because what C.S. Lewis so br brilliantly demonstrates for us, which, I mean, he couldn't have written that because that's totally different than the Chronicles of Narnia. So, right. Anyway. Yes, of course. <laughs> yeah, different Completely but, different language. Yeah. It, it uh, yeah. stylistically, it yeah. it's totally it was, different. It was a totally different. Yeah. It was really <laughs> written by a demon. <laughs> so anyway, but he brilliantly demonstrates for us in the screw tape letters is just how Satan knows how to tempt each one of us. And so, you know, the, the catch is what most, what most people want to deny. And this is what Jesus was trying to teach us is that there is a hook on the end, other end of that bait. The bait's going to yeah. taste good. The bait's going to feel good, but then you've swallowed a hook. And, yeah. you know, that's why Jesus said, whoever sins is a slave to sin, because once you've, once you've opened that door, you've now put yourself into a position where you've become, you know, you've become a tool piece of the enemy and he's going to use you. And then he's going to destroy you when he's done with you because he is not yeah. merciful, which is why, which, you know, it's interesting. One of the things that is, is always wonderful to hear when you hear somebody who converts from Islam to Christianity they, the, one of the main things you'll hear them say is the sense of forgiveness is overwhelming because in Islam, they, they believe that, you know, Allah, which, you know, I, I think you and I both agree is Satan, <laughs> you know, he'll, when you get, to, when you stand before Allah, he might forgive you. You don't know. He's got to weigh out your good deeds from your bad deeds. And you, yep. so you don't know whether you're going to be forgiven until you stand before him. And so knowing that you are forgiven in Jesus, the minute you put your faith in him is such a contrast for Islam. And so when you hear these, these folks who've had these miraculous and I think I met a lady. Did I tell you about this? I was at a work conference and talking to somebody about Jesus and she heard me, she stopped, she backed up and she was like, she was from Eastern, Eastern Europe. And she said, Oh my gosh, I was Muslim and I converted to Christianity. Jesus visited me. And, and cause that happens a lot with the Muslims. Is it that, does. Yeah. It's yeah. really interesting. It's cool. They have a real visitation. And, and again, the thing that they almost all say is when I, when I knew the forgiveness of Jesus, it was so overwhelming because they carry this burden around of unforgiveness. And so it's always so beautiful. It's something I think we take for granted as Christians yes. because you know, we, I mean, it's always so wonderful to hear somebody who, who has come to know Jesus and remind you that, man, what a beautiful gift it is. Like we, like we read in the Psalm last week to know that my sin is as far as the East is from the West. And that I'm truly washed clean in the blood of the lamb. It is such a precious gift because Allah wants to keep, you know, he, that that's exactly Satan's thing is he wants to keep you in this place of psychological submission. So you feel unworthy and you're continually, you know, you're continually coming back to him for your source of, you know, this is why people are addicted to drugs and pornography because you need that next hit, you need that next rush. And in Christianity, you're set free from all of that. And, and it's, it's, it's a dichotomy that if you've not lived, you probably can't truly appreciate, but, but I think if you like you and I, if you were wretched sinners before you came to Jesus, then you can somewhat appreciate it because you can go, Oh, what a wretched man that I am. <laughs> you, you know, so, and that's, I, I talked to a guy recently, um, in a group and he was, he was talking about the, not the struggle, but the fact that you know, he doesn't really have a story like that. Like I wasn't this terrible person. I wasn't drunk. And I, you know, I, I believed in Christ at a very young age and my life reflected that as I grew up. So I didn't really have a lot of problems. And he's like, so I don't have this amazing 
conversion testimony where Jesus set me free of all these things. But to me, that's, 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 that's an even greater testimony to the fact that, look, you don't have to experience all the baggage and pain that goes along with sin, because unfortunately, as, as anybody that has lived in any type of lifestyle or done or gone those things through that, through rebellious phase or whatever, there's a lot of baggage that comes along with that, that that Mm -hmm. can take years that can have effects on you for years Mm -hmm. or the rest of your life. And I mean, what, what a great, yeah. yeah, If you're lucky and what, what a great testimony to say, Hey, I never had to deal with that. I never have to worry about those things. You know, my worries are much different and much less uh, when it comes to that stupidity that I brought on myself Um, (laughs) because that's, that's really what it is. You know, yes, it's fun. Yes. It feels good. And, and however that plays out within your life, but like anything, it just kills you and it doesn't satisfy. And it just leaves you feeling terrible and empty. Hence, you know, that's why like Joshua Broom uh, and uh, Brittany, De- Brittany Delamora, you know, they, they were at the top of the game when it came to the porn industry. And they'll tell you like, it's just a bunch of broken people. And even Joshua, uh, I mean, you know, that's every man's dream, you know? And and he was just sitting there like, I was miserable. I, I had money. I was at the top of the game. I was, you know, I had plenty of women and I was absolutely miserable mm-hmm. and I was lonely and empty. And that's why, you know, you get the suicide note at Vegas that says there are no answers here mm-hmm. because as we know, it's only Christ that can satisfy. It's only in by his spirit that there's any satisfaction in life. And that's, that's the most, the most painful thing is not suffering. The most painful thing is to not withhold anything from yourself and realize the emptiness mm-hmm. of pleasure. Yeah, no, that's. I think it was. Um, who was it that wrote the um, Dor- the picture of Dorian Gray? I cannot remember his name. Uh, but he was he, the guy was a hedonist. The guy was an absolute hedonist. <laughs> mm-hmm. Let me let me of Dorian Gray. Thank you, Doctor Doctor Google. Um, Doctor <laughs> <laughs> Google. <laughs> Doctor Century. Oscar Wilde. You know, Oscar Wilde was a hedonist, mm-hmm. um, and he was, I believe he, it was when he was dying or close to dying and he was with his lover, Robbie Ross. And he asked him a very interesting question to ask. He said, did you ever love any of those boys for their own sake? And he said, no, I love them for my sake. He said, neither do I, neither did I, I need a priest. And it's, it's very interesting because basically the, the conclusion that he came to was only Christ is big enough to cleanse his heart of mine, mm-hmm. you know? And, and mm-hmm. so, I mean, there's a guy you know, and it's, it's sad because you see such talent, such, such God-given talent wasted that could do so much. And yet it's, it's wasted on just that selfish fleshly pursuits. Now, you know, at the end, sure. Great. Awesome. But you know, how much, how much more could have been accomplished for Christ? How much more could have been accomplished for the world? You know, if by those people, if they would rather than pursue self, they would pursue, but that's, that's the 10th, that's, that's the thing is it is an addiction. It is, it's that hook. And once you go down that path, um, there's no telling where it's going to take you or when it's going to be too late, because we do know there's that hardening. There is, there is such a thing as that's, and that's why this stuff with, uh, you know, higher, not just higher criticism, but deconstruction and Mm -hmm. rejecting scripture and rejecting evidence. And I, I remember seeing this guy and starting talking to this guy two years ago on TikTok, uh, who is, uh, he deconstructed, he's an atheist and 
two years ago, the discussion was very much, hey, let's have a discussion. Let's talk about this. Let's go through. And it was a very respectful, not very confrontational. It was good discussions. There was true seeking of like, hey, let's actually walk through these things. Mm-hmm. And now, dude, he is, he's, he's not, it's not anger so much as just mockery. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it you can't even have a discussion with him anymore. Mm-hmm. And it's been interesting to see that change in him where it, it it's, you can see that hardening that has taken place where he just doesn't matter the evidence doesn't matter the evidence. And I, and I, we've had a couple of myself and a couple others where we locked it down to like, man, like this, this is what you're asking for. Here's the evidence. And he just full on says, oh, well, that's, that's not enough to convince me Yeah, that, yeah. you know, and that, that was what he would say that I need, I need more evidence. You know, it's, it's not enough. And it's, and, and you can see where you can't even break through now. It's not even, it's not even rational at times, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's, it's just, Mm -hmm. it's just mockery of, of the text of Christianity. And I mean, it's, that's, that's a scary place to be personally, I I think. Well, sin is not rational, right? And so that's, you know, that's the thing is that once you've given yourself over to that and you've decided that that's what you want to serve, you know, God, God, what does the Bible say? God gives you over to a depraved mind. Yeah you know, yeah, it's, it's a, it's an interesting day and age we live in Paul. In addition to all of that, that we've been talking about, you know, one of the things that I have continued to find, I'm just shaking my head at is not only do you, do you see this depravity where you're completely and totally, you know, turning your back on the evidence of God and the truth of God, but now you see this, the depravity has gone to the point where you have, you know, these university students that, you know, are so, uh, all, you know, so open to inclusiveness and LGBTQ, LMNOP and, you know, all those things and pro-Palestine. Do you not see this? And so, you know, the temptation that Satan wants to tempt us with is like, you guys are a bunch of wackadoodles. You believe in this, you know, you believe in this very narrow minded and this very small way of truth. And the whole world is running amok with all of this. And you guys think you're right. And you hold this one small sliver of truth look at the whole world around you and it's and it's very tempting it's very easy to look at that and think you know we are a little bit crazy right i I was i was actually had the opportunity to sit down for about four hours and talk to somebody about jesus at the conference i was at this week and somehow don't ask me how but we got started on the nephilim (laughs) she's just looking at me like i was like i know it's weird but i promise it's not as weird as you think it is but but you know But compared to the world, it seems weird. But then when you actually take a step back, when you get out of the emotion, when you get out of the heat of things and you look at it and you're like, people who are promoting LGBTQ values are holding a a Hamas flag in the other hand. And it's like, do you understand? (laughs) You would be getting killed right now. (laughs) you were there they would they would just straight cut off your head right and so then all of a sudden when you when you look at it from god's perspective we're not the crazy ones and that's the thing is that you've got to be careful not to you know that the the key to christianity is really get your head above the clouds you know in other words get get out of the muck and mire of the world this is why i don't 
and I'm not promoting this for everybody, but this is why I don't watch TV. This is why I don't listen to secular music. This is why I stay away from a lot of that stuff because it gets you too deep into the fray and you lose the biblical perspective and the whole perspective. And when you take the 10,000 view step and you, or the perspective and, you know, to summarize everything we've been talking about, God's word has been proven true over and over again. We find it in yes. our theology. We find it in, in the fulfilled pro prophecy. You know, we just, just in the principles laid out in the word of God, the way that, that Western civilization has thrived living under the principles of yes of you know the word of god and then you look at the mess that the world's in and you think we're not the crazy ones here <laughs> they you know the gaslighting wants to make you feel like we're the crazy ones but we're really not the crazy ones here we might be seemingly in the minority and i say seemingly because it, you know we find all throughout the scripture that god has his people in in all kinds of places and ways we don't see and we may not be yeah. the loudest and we may not be the biggest but that doesn't necessarily mean we're as small in number as we think now obviously broad road narrow road we know that um you know math wise it broad is the road that leads to destruction narrow is the road that leads to life and if you find it you know we know that ultimately most people many people it seems like based on what yeah. jesus was teaching us we're going to reject the truth but it's you know i i think i think if you feel crazy that's because the enemy wants you to feel crazy but you're not the crazy one and i think that's important to, to hear that and it's easy when i'm you know in business world and i'm navigating these things in in very much the same way daniel was in the court you know when he was you know serving his time as a as a right-hand man of the you know the world leaders at that time you know, it's easy to go, man, I'm definitely in the minority here because I'm the only one who doesn't think it's normal to be, you know, souped up on drugs and alcohol all the time, talking about money, 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 money. And yeah. then I look around and I'm like, but I'm not the crazy one in this group. I'm, I'm sober. Money isn't my God. I have a purpose beyond business dinners and, you know, suits. I have a life. I have a, I have meaning in my life and purpose. And I, I just, every time I go to these business things and I look around and I'm like, the enemy wants me to feel crazy. I'm not the crazy one here, though. <laughs> well, my 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 wife's cousin lives down in a Del Rey area, and we went and visited there. <clears throat> Excuse me. And one of the things that he said is, "You could not pay me enough to have these people's problems." Yeah. And it, and it's true. Yeah. And and you know, I it's not that we again like we're not saying hey blindly believe the Bible, right? No. Take it, test it. You know, look at what evidence there is for it. Look at the validity, like look, test the validity of the text, mm -hmm. but understand, you know, and that's the thing when it comes to like the higher critical scholarship that it is considered sacrosanct, you know, how dare you actually go in and state the, what, you know, how they approach the text and what the origins of it are. Why? Because, well, then, <clears throat> then it kind of, the smoke and mirrors goes away, you know, but I think that that's the key is like, be objective. Like you said, get above the clouds. Get an overarching view of the whole. Excuse me. Paul's dying. And over there. I'm dying. Yeah. <laughs> I got we the black lung. Talking, we were talking about that this morning anyway. Sorry, keep going. I got the black lung pop. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I love Zoolander. That is a dumb movie, but it's such a good one. <laughs> it's like dumb and dumber. I mean, I know, right? Every once in a while, you just need that dumb, stupid, awkward humor in your life. But I, you know, I, Back in 2012, when I was coming home from Afghanistan, I, I am so thankful. We got stuck. We actually, they flew us into Manus and then flew us back into Afghanistan and nobody knew we were coming back. We were, we were not a happy team at that point <laughs> because like we just wanted to get home. It was a very rough trip. We were down in Helmand province the whole time. And um, 
But I know God used that because while I was on the emulator playing Battletoads and Nintendo games with my medic, he asked me, have you ever listened to learn the Bible in 24 hours? And I said, no, I haven't. He's like, all right. And so we listened to it. And that put me on a, a quest. In a sense, you could say an adventure, you know, <laughs> we're out to discover. Um, but it, it really did. Like, yeah. can I demonstrate if I believe this, can I prove it to be true? Can it be demonstrated to be true? And I did look at higher critical scholarship and I did look at like both sides of, of the coin because I wanted to know now, but again, like I approached it all objectively, right? And and that's what you have to be willing to do. And, you know, and I, I guess I'm thankful because I'm thankful for Chuck Missler saying, hey, take and test everything, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. granted, he'll say, you know, you take it and test it against the text. And I will say, take everything that you're taught and test it against the text. Why? Because we can trust it. But go and and check the validity validity of the text. Be willing to put the research in if you want to. Um, the problem is that people will get exposed to higher critical scholarship and just eat it hook, line, and sinker because mm-hmm. scholars are stating it. And this is this is you know Dan McClellan, like he always says, the majority of critical scholarship says, the majority of scholars say, but that's critical scholars. You know, that's, that's the thing. <clears throat> and, you know, they, they, they won't tell you about the presuppositions that they hold, yeah. which is, there's no divine inspiration that, you know, it's just a copy and paste job in, in some part, you know, it's, it, that's the thing is they, they won't give, they start at a certain point, reject like yeah. anyways, but the um, majority of the prophets during the time of Jeremiah were also prophesying peace. Exactly. And exactly. So but majority doesn't mean it doesn't mean bull honky. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And that's like, you know, the truth is truth. And, you know, but I'm very thankful because that did put me out on that to be like, can, can I actually trust the scriptures? Can I know that this is true? If I'm going to be a Christian, if I'm going to claim Christ, can I demonstrate it? You know, can I defend my faith? And really, and it wasn't just from an apologetic standpoint though. And I want people to understand that it wasn't, Mm -hmm. Hey, I'm trying to confirm my bias as a Christian. Right. I was really asking, Hey, can I prove this to be true? Is this mm-hmm. actually valid? If I'm going to believe this. And I am more convinced that Jesus is who he claimed to be and that the Bible is his word than I am my own name. Now <laughs> right. in that though, you know, but, but here's the thing too, with that, in that, that's why I, I studied, you know, post-millennialism, millennialism, you know, pre-millennialism and all the different isms when it came to the text that are out there. And it is a minority position within the body of Christ, at least it seems so, mm-hmm. um, at least within like the uh, the leadership and within the denominations and those that holds a literal biblical interpretation. Yeah. And I would yeah. say serious. Uh, you could yeah. say they're serious, but when it comes to it, um, when I say that, obviously I understand metaphors. I understand there is symbolism. I, you know, right. we understand figures of speech. We God do take that into wings. account. God does not have <laughs> yes. wings. You know, yeah. we're not like the Mormons who like, I, I love, I was listening to Walter Martin one time and he was discussing, just dis, uh, talking with these Mormons. And this guy said, if we could prove that God is an exo- is a man, will you become a Mormon? He says, I will. And so he reads, he reads all, all the, uh, all the passages about the anthropomorphisms of, of God, you know, his ears, his eyes, his mouth, his hands, his arms. And he's like, see, our God is an exalted man. Our prophets are true. He's like, wait, wait, don't stop there. Read Psalm 91, four. 
<laughs> under his wings thou shalt trust now he's a chicken <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, our god is a consuming fire now he's a blast furnace you know and and, and so obviously the kid, he said that even the kid was cracking up at that point because he you know understanding language and, and symbolism and, and what he's trying the 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 ideas that they're trying to convey but you know when it comes to that the symbolism like daniel 7 the symbols represent actual kingdoms on the earth. And so when it says that these are actual kingdoms on the earth, we see them forming. And then it says that the rock cut without hands, who is the Messiah comes and sets up a kingdom on the earth. Well, why, if the other ones were literal kingdoms on the earth, why would I doubt that that last one that says it's going to be a kingdom on the earth is anything but a kingdom on the earth, right? You know, when it says I'm going to regather Israel into their land. And then we see that happen in 1948. I don't understand how you can say, all right, I've I've read through the whole Old Testament multiple times. It straight says God is going to bring Israel back into the land mm-hmm. and it's going to be for the purpose of judgment mm-hmm. and because they're not going to be a believing nation. Mm-hmm. Granted, it doesn't say that directly in one passage. You read all the passages and the prophecies and that's what it tells you. Mm-hmm. So, I, so I don't understand how you can then say, oh, 1948. Yeah, that was just a political fluke because uh, the Jews read the Old Testament and they felt that you know they needed to become a nation again to fulfill the, the word of God. And this is what Christians are telling me on TikTok. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. and so I say I say all that to say. In all of that, was I was pursuing and and I wasn't deconstructing. I was out to pursue what you know. Again, can we prove it's true? Can we demonstrate the validity of the text? And then what does the text tell us? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and and that's where we've got to really step back and just go objectively. Does God say what he means and means what he says? Mm-hmm. And that's just my challenge to everybody on, on here. Like there's nothing wrong with going and seeking and trying to figure it out and learn and, and really wrestle with that idea of, can I trust it? Mm-hmm. But you've got to approach it truly objectively because that's, yeah. that's, that's what a lot of people don't do. Right. Well, there's, you know, you gotta, and then we should probably get into our Psalms, but you know, there's, there's a couple of things that I've noticed where we get ourselves into trouble, you know, rather than like you said, you know, and this is a check message saying, God is going to ask us every day in a different way. Do you trust me? Rather than putting our faith in God, we're going to find ourselves putting our faith in one of two things, man-made, man-made teachings, you know, because again, they're, they, they're seemingly more tangible or our own pride. And, and I'll give you an example of something that really, I was kind of surprised at, at how I didn't see this, but I was talking to somebody who was raised in a very religious uh, family, very, very religious. And when he had questions about things, the response that he was given was, you just have faith. You just have faith. And so this idea of blind faith was highly promoted as a virtue within this religion. And when I started to demonstrate the evidence for God, it really, it really upset him. And I was like, why would you be upset by, by the fact that I'm showing you, you don't have to have blind faith. Right. And and then I realized that he took so much pride in his blind faith. It was, it was this force that he had created within himself that he was able to then tangibly build around. I have this, I am a great person because I have built this, this faith 
that I have centered around, I don't need evidence to believe. And it was actually an egocentric. And so my pointing out that there is evidence for the Bible, that God is not asking us to have a blind faith, actually shattered his own self-righteousness that he had built around this idea that I I have blind faith. And I never thought that that would be an idol in our lives, but it's true. Your knowledge, your, your man-made religion, your energy that you put into this can be something that causes you to you know, to, to have a, 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 an area of pride you may not have been aware of. And it was really interesting because I didn't mean to poke the bear, but I did. Oh boy, I woke the bear <laughs> and in our conversation, sub, subsequent conversations really laid that out for me. And it's been interesting because, you know, I took your advice and I've been reading the way of agape. And one of the things that the Holy Spirit's really been showing me is how easy it is for us to do similar, where we create, I am a Christian, and we create this self-made righteousness or this self-made, whatever it is, it might be blind faith, it might be goodness, you know, I'm going to behave in a certain way, I'm going to be the Christian in the in the air situation. But what Nancy Missler does such a good job pointing out in the way of agape is, it's not my love, it's Christ's love through me. And I, and I think that, that the danger that the Holy Spirit's been showing me that's so easy to do is when, when you've been walking with the Lord for a while and you're kind of going on this journey and you, you're reading his word and you've got this very, you know, this, this very, I don't, I don't, I don't know how to say it, but you know, just this process that you live your life by that I think structure routine, I hate to say that, but it, then it can be very easy for Christianity to become a thing you do rather than the thing lived out through you. Yeah. And and when you say die to yourself, you think, well, that's to sin. But I think it's even greater than that as, as I'm growing and maturing and the Lord's showing me this as I'm reading through the way of agape. It's not just my sin. It's truly laying down anything I think I have to do with anything God's trying to do through me and becoming a truly open and empty vessel so that the Holy Spirit can do work through me. And, you know, loving God and loving people is not something I can produce in and of myself. Being a good Christian is not something I can produce in my own strength. Instead, it's it's the more that I empty myself out. And this is what Paul was talking about to Timothy, <laughs> if he wrote that. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. You know, he said, <laughs> if he did, vessels. we don't know. Yeah, right. You know, but he's talking about there are vessels of more noble purpose. And in other words, what Paul was saying to Timothy, when you, when you really kind of get into the heart of what he's saying is by, by how much you die to yourself and by how much you allow the Holy Spirit to sanctify you and cleanse you determines what type of vessel you're going to be for the Holy Spirit to use. And there are so many different types of vessels out there. And the, the, the difference between those that are, you know, profoundly used versus those that are not has to do with how much they're willing for the Holy Spirit to use them, like how much they're willing to open themselves up, be cleansed by the Holy Spirit, sanctified. And so it, it was fascinating reading this book, The Way of Agape, to be reminded again that every everything, everything that flows from my life must be a product of my surrender to the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit producing that through me. And it's not that I'm a good Christian and I'm going to go into these settings and be a good Christian, or I'm, you know, going to have blind faith and I'm just going to believe it or, you know, because these those are all rooted in pride and you may not see it because you, yeah. your, your intention may be to do the right thing, but you got to watch that because pride is that sneaky little devil that finds its way into your thought process before you know it. And way agape, a way of agape has been a really good reminder that the things that are of value are beyond my capability to produce. I want to say that again, because I think this is important to understand. The things that are produced of value in our lives are beyond our human capability to produce. The only thing that I can produce is that, that willingness, that, that willingness to sit down and say, Lord, help me. <laughs> 
<laughs> like that that's it and even then it, you know paul says it is god who works in you both to will and to do according to his good purpose but you know it's just that, that having that attitude of surrender i think is about the only thing that, that the only really meaningful thing we bring into this whole <laughs> this whole conversation and and way of agape has been really eye-opening for me in that it's really easy to think we somehow have something to offer and the only thing I can offer is less of me and more of him, which is exactly what John the baptizer said when Jesus yeah. showed up to get baptized. Well, you, you offer him yourself, you know, you offer right. him your life. I mean, that's, he gave, he gave his for ours, yeah. you know? And, and so it's, what do you do? You give it right back. Yeah. You know, that's, that's God gave us, God gave us talents. He gave us abilities. He gave us gifts and all of them are to bring glory and honor to him Yeah. and, and to be used for his purposes, yeah. you know, and that's, that's that's the beauty of it and the sacrifice sometimes is it's and you know this anybody that's very gifted in, in a thing can be i can be very prideful in the fact of you know and I, I mean i remember so and i remember when again after afghanistan when i really got turned on to this it was like my knowledge just blew up in a month i yeah. i went from like having no knowledge of the bible to talking with my buddies who had been pastors for years and gone through seminary and all that stuff and maintaining on their level and, you know, that again, why? Cause I can't claim that I can't claim that I, oh, in a month I was able to just read all of this stuff. It's like, no, it just, the amount of information God allowed me to just grab and retain and understand it was, it was truly a gift. And what was interesting and it's, it only, it happened like twice was I, at the, around that time I got led to the passage, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. <laughs> yeah. And what was so interesting was I, I remember very specifically a couple times where I felt that want to be the guy with the answers. Yes, it's a you know, and so I it was so interesting because I was talking with some somebody about uh, the Bible and some things, and I shared a teaching with him. I gave him some resources, or I could have, and, and the temptation was just have him come to you. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And it, it was just, it was, it was very interesting how Satan tried to pull on that flesh to mm -hmm. be like, and I could see in that instant why it is such a warning in Paul to Timothy saying, mm -hmm. you know, as far as overseers, not a, not a new believer, not a novice, mm -hmm. less mm -hmm. being lifted up with pride, they fall into the, the, the snare of the devil. Yeah. You know, there, there, there is that pride that comes with position and knowledge because you're the dude with the answers. Yeah. And so, so I understand that very, very well. Um, but again, so what's, what do you do with that gift? You give it away, yeah. right? Yeah. You, you give it away. So as to, to bless others and to help them and to edify the body and ultimately give glory to God. And that's, you know, again, like you said, it's, it's that, it's that willing to die to self and understand that everything that you have is from him and for him. Mm -hmm. um, so with that, should we get started? Um, on yeah, I think we've been talking for almost an hour. We haven't. Hey, done. yeah, right. It's all right. I think it's good. Right. You know, our our prayer and just you know our prayer all every time, every week is God just speak through us. Like yeah. don't don't let it be us. Let it be you that edifies the body because that's what we want. Mm -hmm. Um, it like John said, like John the Baptist said, more of him, less of me. Um, I do want to say that uh, the book onslaught of ecclesia. Uh, you can get a free digital copy on warriorsrising.com. Uh, so you go there, scroll down the page, you'll see a PDF link and it'll be right there. So you just click it and download it. It's, it's a copy of the book for free. Um, so I hope that you guys, that that encourages you. 
So I've got Psalm 46 and it's a, uh, basically it's one of the sons of Korah that wrote this. And I, I love this Psalm. God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble, man. I, you know, Tiana, everything that we talk about and the way that the world's going to the country's going and, uh, but I, I think I told you, I can't remember. Sorry. I'm going to say this. Uh, somebody put it, I, I was, I, I did a TikTok and somebody in the comment said, I'm voting for Joe Biden. So Jesus comes back faster. <laughs> yeah. You did send that to me. <laughs> it, it was hilarious. So we're going to need this Psalm for that time. Yes. Uh, but uh, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed, though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters war and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling, Salah. There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. The nations raged, the kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice, the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Come behold the works of the Lord who has made desolations in the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots in the fire. Be still. Know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Amen. I love that one. I love that Psalm. And you know, the thing I I have to remind myself is it feels it's not true, but it feels like the, the battle between good and evil, which we all tangibly know exists, which is why these movies make money. It sometimes feels like the darkness is winning. And anytime I get that temptation to, to kind of, and, and I think I know a lot of people who listen to this sometimes take the wrong message away. And I don't mean that to, to, to sound critical, but you know, it's easy. Fear is an easy, easy. It's an easy friend to have. Uh, I heard somebody say once, if, if I had a friend who lied to me as much as fear did, I wouldn't be their friend anymore, but it's a natural it's, we're naturally, you know, given to fear as humans. But anytime that, you know, that, that temptation to feel overwhelmed or dismayed comes upon me, I just close my eyes. And I know, I, I, I think of revelation chapter 19. I mean, Jesus is going to come riding in on a white horse with a huge tattoo on his thigh. Yeah. Kings and Lord of Lords. And he's just going to take care of business. And in that moment, all the pressure that we felt, you know, like coming in around us because the world's going in one direction, we're going to be like, sup. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> my, my point being that we're going to be celebrating the fulfillment of all God's promises and in this temporary sense of, doom and gloom is just that it's temporary and it's not true. So that's the, you know, that's the thing is it's not true and it's temporary. And and I always imagine that scene. I always imagine revelation 19 to remind myself that that's going to happen. One day we will be behind our King and we will watch him victorious. And we, and, and the, the joy of watching God fulfill his promises will be so overflowing in our lives that any, any amount of, of pain or suffering that we've endured will be so insignificant and irrelevant in that moment of time that our King is glorified. So anyway, I, that Psalm, Psalm 46 is a good reminder of that. Okay. I'm going to read Psalm. I said 110 or 111, but I'm going to do 110 because this one's, this one's not quite as comforting as yours, but along the same vein. The Lord said to my Lord, 
sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord extends your mighty scepter from Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy splendor from the womb of the dawn, you belong. To you belongs the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And I could go on why that's such a significant statement there. But anyway, the Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations heaping up the dead. He will crush the leaders far and wide. He will drink from the brook by the road. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So in Hebrews... I love Hebrews and you bring it up Melchizedek, right? This is, if you want an awesome study, study through Hebrews, but understand its context. Okay. The, the author is writing to Jewish believers and and understand. So some of the epistles, some of the, some of the epistles are to Jewish believers. So some of the things in there are not going to apply to us. Mm -hmm. Okay. This is pre fall of the temple. It is to Jewish believers. Mm -hmm. Um, They're wanting to go back under Judaism. Uh, to to avoid the persecution mm-hmm. because most of the persecution was initially from the Jews. So what the author does is lay out methodically why Jesus is better than all the major pillars of Judaism, better than angels. And the, and the angels are very highly venerated within Judaism. Mm-hmm. And so he's demonstrating, hey, he's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He is better than Joshua. He is uh his priesthood is better than the Aaronic priesthood, which is based on lineage, whereas his is appointed by God. And when you study um, Hebrews 5 and the Melchizedekian priesthood, it goes into the details of, of why it is better, right? Mm-hmm. There's no end. It doesn't end with his death. It's not, you're not aged out. It's appointed by God versus being based on lineage and an age limit. I mean, so there is an awesome uh, study of Hebrews five and the whole book of Hebrews is, is phenomenal, a better covenant based on better promises. So that is an awesome, awesome study in the book of Hebrews. But if you want to really get a good look into the Melchizedekian priesthood and why it's better Hebrews five, go check that out. I, it is, it's phenomenal. It's so cool. Yeah. And he was the King of Salem, which is the King of peace. And he was a King and a priest, which, you know, in under the old covenant, there were Kings. And there were priests. There was no. But he was not a Jew. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Because Abraham, Abraham yep. gave him tithes. Yep. Yeah. Chuck Missler's book of I think it's twenty four hours. It takes him to go through the book of Hebrews. It's a really good teaching. Yeah, it's something like that. It's. I, I like <laughs> all of Chuck Missler's stuff's pretty good. Most yeah, of it. Yeah, I, I, I enjoy I gonna, it. That was something I was going to say. Then we should jump in. I think I mentioned this a couple of times, Nancy in Chuck Missler's book, The Kingdom, Power and King Glory. Power and the Glory. Yeah. I the title I don't think does this justice because the real key is the overcomer's handbook. You know, when when Jesus says to the seven letters to the to the seven churches, the seven letters to seven churches, to he who overcomes, what does that mean? That is something that all of us should understand and understand what what is at stake 
And I think this is the first time I've heard those ideas brought together that Jesus warned us about. I mean, he told parables about the parable of the talent, the parable of the yes. virgins, the parable of the wedding feast. And he was the one who who said, abide in me and I in you. You know, anybody who does not abide in me will be cut off and thrown into the fire. You, these are things that are, are warnings that Jesus gave us. And I don't feel like the church has ever, because we've hung on to eternal salvation, the justification piece, you know, you can't lose your salvation, but we've lost the inheritance. You can forfeit your inheritance. And, you know, and that was really, you know, so much at the heart of the power of the Holy Spirit being given to us is that ability then to go from justification to sanctification into glorification. And so I highly recommend, again, anybody who has not read The Kingdom, Power, and Glory to get it on Audible. And the reason I say that is because Nancy Missler isn't reading through the book. She's teaching the series in there. And then you can get the book as a companion to go along and look at the graphs and charts that she's going through there. It's easier to learn as she's teaching it versus just listening to somebody read a book. So it's the best $13 you'll spend if you decide to apply what is in this book. It's solid. It's really good. So on the news, and this is very interesting, uh, Qatar just recorded the highest ever quarterly excess mortality at 62%. Don't forget, they're also one of the highest boosted and uh, fastest boosted countries in the world. Now, to understand excess mortality, just so we have a good working knowledge of it, basically, it's a term used that refers to the number of deaths from all causes during a crisis above and beyond what would have been expected to see under normal conditions. So you have Excess deaths equal reported deaths minus the expected deaths. Mm -hmm. So Qatar's deaths, and Qatar is not a big country. Mm -hmm. They they have 62% more people died than expected. Mm -hmm. That that is a insane number, insane number. Well, and and I follow follow a, a person on X, his name is, or his, I don't know his or hers, the person's name is the ethical skeptic. That's where I got this. Okay. Yeah. And, and what the ethical skeptic does is just trend this data. And what's fascinating is the CDC has started pulling down and, and the VAERS database has been started to pull down because they, this person, he, I'm assuming it was, he has noticed the trend also in excess mortality here in the United States in the different age groups and the data was becoming too telling. So they've started to remove it. So that's always scary. Uh, so basically, it's a, this is a tweet on Tucker Carlson on X, and I would definitely go. And you can double speed, fortunately, on X. If you uh, click the video and enlarge it to your screen, you can uh, double the speed. Or you can download a, a an add-on to your browser, and it'll give you the option to speed up to whatever you want. So you can go up to three or four time speed if you're nuts. Um, but basically, it says the First Amendment is done. Douglas Mackey is about to go to prison for mocking Hillary Clinton on the internet. Now, I, I would I would recommend watching this interview just to see what's going on within our nation. Because what happened back in 2016, he was putting out a bunch of meme tweets and he copy and pasted like, uh, call this number to vote uh, for Hillary Clinton, right? It, it, jokes, right? Mm-hmm. Basically mocking her. Nothing came about. And then Biden got in office. And shortly after Biden, he talks about it. Shortly after Biden got in office, basically the FBI was knocking on his door, and they're saying he was the the way that uh, Hillary Clinton spun it in her. There's this guy he was putting stuff on Twitter, and through the algorithm was affecting the election. And he's like, I posted a tweet, it went viral, people were laughing, 
And they did a big investigation. They could not find one person. And they even called people that had called the number. And they said, we thought it was funny. We thought it was a joke. We just want to see what would happen. Um, so they were, they weren't able to prove that it had any effect at all. It, all the evidence points to the opposite. However, again, you speak against the system, you speak against the, those in power. He's looking at like 10 years in jail or something like that. Mm-hmm. Doesn't really, matter. So it, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, it's really scary how the FBI has been weaponized against the American people. Yeah. It, so our, our first amendment is we have a first amendment doesn't really matter, you know? And this is what, if you understand this and you just kind of accept it, it's going to make it a lot less painful. Our constitution does not matter anymore. Mm-hmm. The, the law does not matter anymore. If you're on the right, or if you're a conservative, if you're a Christian, that doesn't apply. It, it, it applies to you, but it doesn't apply to other people. Right. You know, this is, this is why you see, um, People can in the not January sixth, but the year prior, they literally burned down Washington D.C. Yeah, they mass like there were people getting killed. They were burning down buildings. They were storming the Capitol. You didn't hear a dar- you know not one person really arrested. You didn't see trials and all this stuff. Then you see January sixth, and we know now because it's come out that the FBI was embedded in there trying to push people to do things, and you have a bunch of people. That we I, we read their uh, we read their their accounts of what they're going through, um, and it just it doesn't really matter. And so if you if you just understand, hey, guess what? We're not a constitutional republic anymore. We're a we're a banana republic. We are. I mean, they're looking to jail an opponent. They're mm-hmm. the top candidate for the president and a prior president to jail him over a bunch of false claims. Doesn't matter. Yeah. Well, they did that to the J6 prisoners. They've exactly. Done that to this guy, they've done that to Trump. It's, and listen, there's a reason why they are arming 87,000 new IRS agents. Yeah. And, you know, I wouldn't, and they're allowing all these people into the country. Yeah. I mean, it's I all part be, of it. I wouldn't be surprised if to make sure that Trump doesn't get into office. I mean, not only are they going to do everything to politically persecute Trump, but then they're also going to go after anybody who could potentially vote for Trump. And that's what, that's exactly what Obama did with the tea party. And he unleashed the IRS on anybody who donated to the tea party. So we've seen this before, but I think we're going to see it probably in mass in a greater, and it dovetails very nicely with my Babylon B, which I can't wait to get to in a minute. (laughs) (laughs) Should I read the next story? Yeah, go for it. All right. So unfortunately, once again, the Pope has shown his true colors and he is from all Israel news. This is an opinion piece. The Pope's absurd advice of a ceasefire and coming together. Is it the fact that he's 86 and no longer has clarity of mind? We're talking about the Pope and not the president. (laughs) Or is it that he really doesn't (laughs) have a grasp on the mindset of barbaric terrorists? Once again, we're talking about the Pope and not the president. Either way, the recent calls made by Pope Francis for there to be a ceasefire in the Hamas-Israel war is one of the greatest absurdities which only testifies to his complete inability to recognize profound evil that must be fought and eradicated. Vatican News quotes the Pope saying, we may think, may, may we think about the children, all the children involved in this war. We are killing their future in this way. It would appear that the pontiff needs a reminder that the future of the children, toddlers and babies who were burned alive, stuffed in an oven, shot and tortured is already irrelevant since they are no longer with us. Were their precious lives meaningless to the point that a ceasefire should be declared, rendering Israel unable to avenge their deaths as would any other nation under siege? And I just want to, because this is an opinion piece, I want to point out, 
this what Israel's doing isn't about avenging their deaths. It's about making sure it never happens again. There's a difference. Yes. And I think sometimes to turn it into a revenge piece is, is the talking point that 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 the pro-Palestinian, pro-Hamas side is doing. Look, they're just avenging. This isn't fair. They're going over the top. No, 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 no. This isn't about avenge. This is about making sure it never happens again. And so anyway, the last the last paragraph is and what what happens to the terrorists who would be able to remain in their safe haven of Gaza until the next round when they would once again parachute into our sovereign country in order to inflict yet another savage massacre? That is what they have said they would do. So, you know, again, just be careful. It doesn't matter if it's the Pope. Um, anytime you put in your faith in man, you're going to find yourself disappointed because there was only one man who was perfect in all that he said and did, and he was yeah. God. So. Well, you know, I've heard the argument that, well, you know, Jews, Israel came in in 1948, kicked all the Palestinians out of their land, out of their houses, and they've been in an occupied state since. What would you want those people to do? How, you know, they have no other choice. And this is them just rising up against the mean occupiers. And then, of course, obviously, and we've talked about this before, you pan out, you see the Arab world and the number of countries and the Muslim world, then you have tiny little Israel. But this goes back farther than that. And this is really important that people need to understand and actually go look at the history and read through the history. This is on um, the uh, Jewish virtual library. I pulled up this information on, because uh, most people haven't heard about the Hebron massacre. Mm -hmm. So this is, understand, this is, Israel's not a nation. Uh, in the summer of 1929, what was one of unrest in Palestine as Jewish immigrants were arriving in increasing numbers, and the agitations of the of the Mufti in Jerusalem spurred on Jewish Arab Jewish Arab tensions. One day prior to the start of the Hebron massacre, three Jews and three Arabs were killed in Jerusalem when fighting broke out after a Muslim prayer service on the Temple Mount. Arabs spread false rumors and libels through their communities, saying that the Jews were carrying out wholesale killing of the Arabs. Now, could they prove this? No. Why? Because it wasn't happening. And, and these people lived in these communities. So they would think that they'd say, oh, hey, no, these all these people are still alive. No, right. because ultimately it's Jew hatred. It, it's the Alami Bai, it's the eternal hatred. Hebron had up until this time been outwardly peaceful, although tensions hid below the surface. The Sephardi Jewish community, which were Jews that came from Spain, North Africa, and Arab countries in Hebron, had lived quietly with its Arab neighbors for centuries. These Sephardi Jews spoke Arabic and had a cultural connection with the Arabs of Hebron. On Friday, August 23rd, that tranquility was lost. Arab youths. 29. Yeah. I think 1929. Yeah. I wanted, yeah, I wanted yeah, to put no, the year yeah. in there, so I keep going. Re repeat that again. Yeah. <laughs> Arab youths began the riots by hurling rocks at the yeshiva students as they walked by. That afternoon, student uh, Shmuel, uh, Shmuel Rosenholtz went to the yeshiva alone. Arab rioters broke into the building and killed him. Rosenholtz was but the first of a dozen murders. On Friday night, Rabbi Yaakov Slonim's son invited any Jewish fearful of worsening situation to stay in their family house. The rabbi was highly regarded in the community and he kept a gun. Many of the Jews in the community took his offer for shelter. Unfortunately, many of these were eventually murdered. On August 25th, the United States Consul General reported casualty estimates of 100 killed and 300 wounded, including 12 Americans dead and others wounded in Hebron. The actual casualty toll in the massacre was 12 Sephardi Jews and 55 Ashkenazi. And the Ashkenazi Jews are the ones from Europe. A few Arabs tried to help the Jews. 19 Arab families saved dozens, but if if not hundreds of Hebron's Jews. Uh, Zamir Amani wrote about an Arab named Abu Id Zaitun, who brought his brother and son to rescue the family. The Arab family protected the Manis with his sword, hid them in a cellar along with the other Jews they had saved, and eventually found a policeman to escort them safely to the police station at Beit Romano. For three days, the Jews were the Jews were besieged at Beit Romano by the rampaging Arabs. 
Each night, 10 men were allowed to leave the building and go to Hebron's ancient Jewish cemetery to conduct a funeral for any Jews murdered that day. Violence throughout Palestine instigated by the Arabs resulted in the death of 133 Jews and 110 Arabs, which were killed by mostly British security forces. Three days after the massacre, the British evacuated 484 survivors, including 153 children, to Jerusalem. More than 200 Arabs and 15 Jews were tried and sentenced for their roles in the unrest in 1929. Out of 27 capital cases involving Arabs, only three of the death sentences were carried out and others were granted mercy and their sentences were commuted to life in prison. Uh, Mohammed uh, Jamjoun, Fuad Hijazi, and Atta Alzir were, part, uh, were put to death on June 17, 1930, because they were convicted of particularly brutal murders in Safad and Hebron. Now, on, in, on July 14, 1930, the Palestinian Bulletin reported that Arab leaders wanted to honor the men and planned to discuss, discuss whether to erect a statue in their memory. So uh, that a number of Jewish families tried to move back to Hebron, but were removed by the British authorities in 1936 at the start of the Arab revolt. <laughs> and so, and there's, there's more of these, there's plenty more of these prior to, during, and post 1946. So this is something that was going on even prior to that, but you won't hear about this, right? right. You don't hear about these things discussed. When I was in Jordan, I saw a truck driver. Um, I saw a truck, and on the top of the truck, it had a sign that said "Kill the Jews." You know, it's, <laughs> this isn't about an occupying force. This is about the fact that they hate the Jews. Now, I will give it to them. Like there were some, Jew, you know, not all, not all Arabs, not all Middle Easterners are like this. What was interesting, uh, and I, I was going to put it up here, and I completely forgot to. But they actually in Saudi Arabia, and this goes back to Ezekiel thirty-eight, right? And uh, the nations, I think it's Psalm 8, I don't remember if Psalm 83 involves uh, Saudi Arabia, but um, in Ezekiel 38, Saudi Arabia does not get involved. And they basically kind of put up a protest in a sense. And there was a, a sheikh um, or was it a, it, anyway, it was a, some religious leader in Saudi Arabia. He was talking and pro-Palestinian and like going after the Jews. And they basically, you see a bunch of people like taking him down and arresting him. It was a, so it I thought was a Muslim imam. Yes. Yeah. Muslim yeah. imam. That's right. Thank yeah, you. Thank you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so that was very interesting to see, uh, given again, given what we know is going to occur um, and given the tensions within the region, the tensions with the, the Arab world and the Muslim world and Israel right now. So, but I, I wanted, again, it goes back to, the reality of the situation and knowing what the truth is. The truth is this has been going on for decades and centuries, mm -hmm. you know, and mm -hmm. if you want a good understanding, again, it goes back to Jacob and Esau and the eternal hatred. When you see all these tensions with Edom in the old Testament, the book of Obadiah, the book of Obadiah mm -hmm. specifically is against Edom against the descendants of Esau who married into Ishmael, right? Because they helped they not only mocked and and rejoiced at Babylon destroying Israel and taking them captive. When Jews would run away, they would capture them and give them to the Babylonians. And so Obadiah is a judgment on on Edom. Mm -hmm. um, so there, you know, understanding what all is going on here is kind of just in a sense setting up even more for a fulfilling of biblical prophecy and a continuation of what the Bible already laid out hundreds and thousands of years in advance and was already going on. Yeah. 
And when you say hundreds and thousands, you don't mean hundreds of thousands. <laughs> no, hundreds and thousands, thousands yes. <laughs> not okay. hundreds of thousands. <laughs> yeah, so really quickly, disillusioned Jews are seeing the fastest anti-Semitism of the left by Paul Downing. This is from the American Thinker. As Americans... As America's Democrat Party takes a page from the playbook of Germany's Nazi past, the Jewish question has become this. Are blinded Jews doomed to a return of anti-Semitic tyranny as Biden's sadist Democrats embrace fascism and Fantomas? After the Holocaust, Jewish support of, of any movement or party of the political left should have been an anathema. But people of the book made the mistake of believing too much in what they read in America's left of center press, especially if it appeared in the newspaper of record, New York Times, which to this day insists on improperly labeling every neo-Nazi a far-right extremist and therefore, therefore thereby placing the totalitarian party of Hitler in the company of emancipatory party of Lincoln, of the emancipatory party of Lincoln. Miseducated Jews are now awakening to the reality that the American Democrats have much in common with the European fascists. For instance, Democrats have yet to offer any serious criticism of the anti-Semitic ways of Alex Alexandria AOC, Ocasio-Cortez, Ilian Omar, and Rashida Taleb. Jews have been utterly taken back by their support of death dealing Hamas terrorists. Among the Jewish voices urging, urging the abandonment of the de Democrat Party is playwright David Mamet. Many good German Jews in the 30s ignored their brothers and sisters and later died with them. My generation, born right after the Holocaust, wondered, good God, didn't you see what was happening around you? Are you literally willing to die rather than admit you were mistaken? The answer today to many liberal American Jews is yes. Yep. Yep. It's, well, and this kind of goes into the tweet and I, we don't, I can't, I'm not going to get to play, but uh, on end wokeness, that's the tweet you told me about mm -hmm. um, a British police officer is telling British citizens, put away your, uh, your British flag. And then they're saying, why do we have to put away our British flag? And why are these Palestinians, why are these Muslims allowed to march with Palestinian flags through the streets? And the, the officer actually says to them, there's way more of them than there are of us. Yeah. Which actually goes to the last, well, we can, if you, um, if you want to hit the article, but I think that all European life died in us, which I think dovetails nicely with what you just talked about. Yeah. Um, this is by Sebastian Villar uh, Rodriguez. He's a Spanish writer. This is back from 2004. I walked down the street in Barcelona and suddenly discovered a terrible truth. Europe died in Auschwitz. We killed 6 million Jews and replaced them with 20 million Muslims. In Auschwitz, we burned a culture, thought, creativity, talent. We destroyed the chosen people, truly chosen, because they produced great and wonderful people who changed the world. The contribution of this people is felt in all areas of life, science, art, international trade, and above all, as the conscience of the world. These are the people we burned. And under the pretense of tolerance, and because we wanted to prove to ourselves that we were cured of the disease of racism, we opened our gates to 20 million Muslims who brought us stupidity and ignorance, religious extremism and lack of tolerance crime and poverty due to an unwillingness to work and support their families with pride. They have turned our beautiful Spanish cities into third world, drowning in filth and crime. And if anybody doubts this, just go look up the crime statistics crime statistics, and look what's happened to these cities and countries with uh, the rapes, the murders, the stabbings, since the robberies, since these Muslim populations have moved in. Shut up in apartments they receive free from the government. They plan the murder and destruction of their naive hosts. And thus, in our misery, we have exchanged culture for fanatical hatred, creative skill for destructive skill, intelligence for backwardness and superstition. We have exchanged the pursuit of peace of the Jews of Europe and their talent for hoping for a better future for their children, their determined clinging to life because life is holy, for those who pursue death. 
for people consumed by the desire for death for themselves and others, for our children and theirs. What a terrible mistake and made by miserable Europe. Yeah. And then just the last story, and I won't read it, but you know, there was a, a 69 year old Jewish man who was hit in the face by a professor and with, with a bullhorn and he fell backwards, hit his head and succumbed to his wombs and the sad succumbed to his wounds, not wombs. He does not have yeah. a womb, his wounds. <laughs> uh, and, yeah. and sadly it looks like his murder is going to get off without a charge yeah. on this. And, and, you know, Paul, we were just talking as you were trying to find the story, they were saying he fell backwards and leaving out the fact that he was hit in the face with a bullhorn. A bullhorn. As a yeah. So we're watching. That made him fall backwards. Yeah, we're watching Jews murdered on our streets. This happened in Los Angeles, guys. And, you know, again, if you have not read Corey Tim Boom's The Hiding Place, pay the 99 cents, download it on, on your Kindle, on your phone, whatever, buy the book. Because what Corey Tim Boom goes through and, dis and talks about in that book is how the Nazi mindset began to be in in integrated into everyday society. It wasn't like one day they showed up and kill all the Jews. It was a slow boil. It was a slow process where these things became normal and normal and normal. She tells a story about their family was a watchmaker and their dad hired a young man and you know he was a little bit he was they didn't realize how much he was being indoctrinated by the nazi regime and one day they find him you know in an alleyway harassing a jewish man this is how it starts it doesn't start with everybody all of a sudden jumping on board it starts with small small you know things here and then it grows into a flame so you know like you said paul this is this was all coming but you know it's coming at a pace that that is ushering us into you know, the things that the Bible's been prophesying for hundreds and thousands of years. <laughs> yeah. You know, M Martin Niemöller, this is a quote I'm sure people have heard, but in World War II, he was a Lutheran pastor um, that was, he was pro-Nazi initially. And then uh, when Hitler came to power, he was very outspoken against him. Uh, basically, he spent eight years, I believe it was. Yeah, eight years uh, in a prisoner camp. Um but this was his quote. First, they came for the socialists. I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. They came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there were there was no one left to speak for me. Mm, you know that yeah. that we have a voice and we have a mission, and you know again we we can use our our vote. We can use our vote as a voice. Now, whether that matters, it doesn't, you know, does, is it going to actually have an effect? Possibly, maybe not, who knows? But the fact is we do have that fiduciary duty. Um, we can speak truth, right? We can speak truth to power. You know, we can, and like you've said so many times, we don't war to victory, we war from victory. Mm -hmm. But we do have our voice and we can at least share the truth with those that are lost. And we can have these discussions and we can have them with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we should. You know, again, it goes back to that. We we need to be have that recognition that we are on mission 24-7, yeah. 365. Like yeah. it, it doesn't stop. You're in that warfare constant on so many different fronts. So we just need to be light and salt and and represent Christ in the way that he calls us to and ready and prepared to do it, right? The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but the victory is the Lord's. Yeah. But the horse needs to be prepared. Yeah, exactly. So, all right, Paul, All right. What's, your what's your Babylon B? Archaeologists discover Apostle Paul's completed Awana vest. <laughs> Anybody that's been in Awana 
<laughs> and knows when you're a kid, man, those patches, they matter. Archaeologists excavating a site near the Temple Mount have unearthed a startling new piece of evidence that further proves the historical authenticity of the New Testament. Uh, the New Testament, the Apostle Paul's completed a one of est. This is an earth-shattering discovery, sure to be a token of faith for believers all around the world, said Levi Cohen, who oversaw the dig. When we saw the words, Paul the Apostle, clearly inscribed in permanent marker on the laundry neck tag, our hearts stopped. Sources <laughs> confirmed that Paul had achieved the Sparks ranks of skipper and hiker, as well as the advanced rank of climber. In addition, he had three fully completed crown pins, a testament of his aptitude for memorizing scripture. It should come as no surprise that Paul ex excelled in theological studies and verse memorization in the Iwana program, especially considering he wrote most of the theology and verses himself, said Cohen. Come to think of it, it's kind of an unfair advantage. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> oh, speaking of, I did get a, a message from a woman and she was asking about scripture memory um, oh. because she started memorizing scripture. And it, I, I just want to read this real quick. She said, um, recently I was in a store and I become overwhelmed with my own thoughts and worries. So I started reciting Psalm 23, which is the only scripture I've memorized. Then it hit me. This is why you memorize scripture because you may not have your Bible on you or be able to use your phone but you need to have the word to bring you comfort. Yeah. Amen. That is that. dead on. And, you know, so she asked, she asked like, what verses do, should we memorize? You know, I'm, I'm always a fan of memorizing the ones that mean a lot to you memorize the definition of the gospel, mm -hmm. you know, the basics of John three sixteen those, but then find the ones that really speak to you. I, I like, I like memorizing books of the Bible. I like mm -hmm. going at that challenge, but you know, that's, that's me. Right. But I so think that what, if you, that's what we do with uh, made to conquer. So if you're on the telegram channel every week, Lena takes, we're going through the book of Ephesians. We did Colossians last every week. Lena takes a, a verse or two from the book of Ephesians. She makes it a phone wallpaper so you can save it to your phone and it's right there. So you're looking at it all week long and then we get the next one. So that way you can memorize a book of the Bible, one, one to two verses at a time every week. For yeah. free. We do it for free. It's just put out there. You just get it, download it and save it. Yeah. All right. Are you ready for this one? Yes. Want to be an FBI agent? Here are the top nine qualifications. Being an FBI agent is a sweet gig. Excitement, carrying a badge and a gun, wearing one of those cool FBI windbreakers, spying on law-abiding law citizens, and cracking <laughs> down on dangerous terrorists like Auntie Mabel, who voted for Trump. But how does one become an FBI agent? The Babylon Bee is here to give you a leg up on the competition with the top nine things the Bureau looks for when screening potential candidates. Number one, you always got into trouble at school for being the tattletale. Willingness to snitch on your fellow citizens is priority number one. Number two, you shout domestic terrorist at every image in a Rorschach test, even when it was clearly an image of your parents fighting. Number three, when your neighbor hasn't returned your leaf blower, you kick in his front door at 2 a.m. carrying an AR-15. It's the only sensible response. Number four, you are a Sega Genesis kid. Self-explanatory. <laughs> Number five, you're absolutely convinced Lee Harvey Oswald acts alone. This is a non-negotiable. Number six, your favorite part of watching a movie is the FBI piracy warning. Reading the criminal penalties for bootlegging movies is always better than the movies themselves. Number seven, you cried when Old Yeller was shot using an unregistered gun. How did those monsters get away with it? Number eight, you think pedophiles are just misunderstood. You're hired. And number nine, you hate freedom. Enough of, the, enough of this liberty crap. It's time to oppress the populace. The FBI runs a tight ship and only takes cream of the crop. But if the list above fits you, you've got a bright future as a Fed. <laughs> That is so sad, but true. 
God, that's what makes it. Oh my gosh. All right. Well, thank you guys for joining us today. I hope it was an encouragement. I just, um, if you have questions, if you have prayer requests, please email me, paul at thewarriorsrising.com. Like, share, subscribe to this podcast. Thank you, Tiana. We should have had a party and like celebrated our one year birthday, but we didn't. Clapping. Yeah, I'll, I'll get myself a, a coffee or something because I've been up pretty much since one o'clock this morning. I woke up at one thirty. I woke up at one thirty and I fell back at three sleep at three fifty seven, and my alarm was for four. And I was like, no, yeah. no. Well, I give you a hard time, but the reality is, you get up an hour earlier for me to do this because you're in a different time zone. So I, you know, Paul, thank you for you do the majority of the work around this podcast. Obviously, it's your podcast. I'm just your guest, but thank you for the the year of dedication and commitment to this podcast. I know that many people's lives have been blessed as a result of it, and you know, praise God, we don't know the full extent of that because our egos Amen. might we might think we Amen. have something to do with it. But <laughs> thank yeah. you for being obedient to the Lord and and uh, soldiering on in this because to to get up every single Friday as early in the morning as you do and do it, you know, without complaining and grumbling, we might both sometimes go, I ain't got anything like there's no cohesion or comprehension happening up here in this noggin of mine, but, <laughs> but thank you. Thank you for that. And I know that I'm speaking for the thousands of people who listen to this and appreciate it as well. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. And thank you for being obedient and getting this thing started. Cause it really was you that got it, got it going. So, but, and then everybody listening, thank you, because if it wasn't for you, we wouldn't yeah. be here. So yeah, appreciate you guys. you guys. Hope we encourage you and just keep yeah. trucking on and keep, keep doing and pursuing what, you know, God is calling you to. And so just mm -hmm. thank you for joining us in this. And I hope that we continue to encourage you guys and be obedient. So go out, preach the gospel, disciple the nations, and just be active in that warfare. Cause it is, it's going to be exciting when we get to stand before the King and see all of our, all of our inheritance and crowns and hear well done and faithful servant. Amen. So, all right, guys. Have a great week. We will talk to you next week. This is Paul with Warriors Rising. Out. Mm -hmm.